Hey, welcome to the 125th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. This episode was brought to you by patrons Shane Collins, Ryan Moulton, and Oscar Vaca. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Uh, so this episode is just Matt and me. We are going to go through a ton of listener questions. We have a bunch of really great questions. I believe it's six we even have voicemails. We have all these things we've kind of been saving up for this episode where you will find the answers to everything. Uh, what, How to hire people, how to get hired, what to do after meetings, um, and a bunch of other stuff that we are going to get into. We've got a treasure trove of listener voicemails from all over the world. Uh, we've got questions about working with inexperienced directors. We've got questions about living in a small town and how to crew up with your friends and how to get exposure when you don't have a ton of connections. It's a great uh, batch of questions. So if you've sent one in recently, this is probably your episode. But before we do that, Oren. Yes. What have you been working on lately? I have been doing a lot of post-production related things. I've been using Google Hangouts and Skype a lot to like share my screen with various people I'm working on edits and visual effects shots with, which I find really awesome. Have you done that? Have you ever like sat in on a session remotely? Uh, I have not. I have not, but um, but I'm open to it. I, I feel like, you know, obviously I'm just spoiled because I think everything is, all of my posts has been in Los Angeles, so I've been able to go, basically. Um, or well, I take it that back. There was CBNT5, the post was in New York, but... Uh, we weren't working in real time together ever. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of fun because you can show people your cursor, you can show screenshots, you can do, uh, you know, it, you can really make sure people are looking at the exact same thing you're looking at. And nowadays with like everyone having good internet, it seems to go pretty well. Um, the other thing I actually wanted to ask you about is I just had a meeting yesterday about a general meeting as a director, a meeting you actually uh, recommended me for. And I think we might have talked about this before, but I don't remember what conclusion we came to. But what do you do after a meeting? Do you send, do you typically send like a thanks for the meeting email? Uh, you know, yes. Especially when it's a general meeting. Like it's, you're not talking about any one specific project. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's worthwhile. I, I feel like nine times out of 10, something comes up in the meeting that you have to follow up with. So someone will be like, oh, I'd love to see that thing you shot. Or, oh, this is that podcast episode that I was referencing. You know, I think that there's enough, you know, you have banter, you go back and forth. So like you follow up with like maybe a joke from the meeting, callback or something, and then some follow-up materials, you know. I don't go on a ton of generals. And even when I do, I have a sense of like what... I'm going to maybe follow up with like, oh, here's that writing sample I referenced or, or something like that. You know what I mean? So I almost always have an excuse to follow up beyond just like, hey, thanks. You know what I mean? Right. But wouldn't you say most of your drinks are pretty much like general meeting? Yeah. But even still, like a drinks, I would not send a follow up like thank you email. I don't think. Right. That's uh, that, that's so much less formal than a general, you know. Like you went on the lot and you sat down and you shook the hands and all of that stuff. Right. I did this thing last week where uh, I really love this program called Mocha. It's like a tracking plugin for After Effects. Sure, yeah. And so I get their their monthly newsletter and in the last one there was an article about Barnstorm VFX, which is yeah, know, the VFX company that is run by Lawson Deming who is someone we both know. 
And so Wait, how do you know Lawson? Through crewing? Uh when I was at Disney, he actually was a gaffer on a bunch of our shoots. Uh, okay. And then through visual the visual effects world, I kinda know him and I just sent him a note. I haven't talked to him for like a year or so. And I said, Hey, I saw this great write up on you guys in Mocha in Mocha's newsletter. That's awesome. Congrats. You know, they're doing Silicon Valley. They're doing all these yeah. things. And, Killing it. And Lawson's actually directing like the opening title sequences for all these big TV shows now, mm-hmm. yeah. even though his main gig is owning a VFX company. Anyway, so I just said, congrats on the article. It was great. And he wrote back and said, oh, you know, I'd love for you to come in and just like, I want to show you the stuff we've been working on and see if we can collaborate on something. So it's this is very loosely related to the thank you email <laughs> conversation, but there is something nice about just like reaching out to people that you kind of know in the industry and just saying like, hey, I saw this thing about you. Congrats. Um, because, you know, it, it's like that heartbeat of just keeping yourself alive in people's minds and not in any sort of like uh, opportunistic way, but just sure. the importance of, of staying in contact with people that you like uh, is really helpful, even if you have nothing to show them. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So what have you been working on lately? Um, I was in an edit session all day for my short. We are 95% there. Oh, right. Um, I was actually going to ask you about this. Yeah, it, it was super fun. It was, uh, you know, I think I always go through the emotional roller coaster of loving a screenplay and then uh, loving your shoot and then seeing that first cut and being like, oh, man, I'm not as good at this as I thought or like I wasted everybody's time or I should, you know, move to Milwaukee or something. I don't know. Uh, you just get bummed on that first cut because, as I always joke, it's the worst version of your movie. You know, like, no one ever turns in a perfect first cut. And it's always going to be slightly different than what you were anticipating. And so, and this one was really personal and took a lot of TLC. And, you know, so uh, I feel like we finally got it to a place that I feel really good about. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, you know, we talk a lot about notes. And obviously, you and I know each other through the podcast. And so I feel maybe a little bit more comfortable being candid with you. And I always like to get your opinion. And I, I sent you a bunch of notes on your short today. But I always like get a little nervous when I send notes. Like oftentimes I'll like send notes to someone. And then e- even after I sent them, I'll reread them and think to myself, do my notes even like make any sense? Um, because I know getting notes is just like such a personal thing, especially when someone is telling you like, oh, this isn't working. This is what you need to do. Right. Which was right. a lot of what my notes kind of were they were like very like i think this is like a better way to do this you know which is like such a dick type of note to give well you know i think um the nature of taking notes is so personal um and so complicated because you have to be open to them right and it's very easy and very human for them to feel like an attack especially on something that you really poured your heart and soul into And so I feel like I am pretty good at taking notes in that I don't take them personally very often. Um, But I have, you know, on this one, like I had some pals who sent notes on the script and I was like, you know, a little bit bummed on it, mostly because they were right, which is a little bit harder. Um, But I've been on every side of the table for notes. I've been in development proper. I've been... I've given I've given script notes and picture notes 
on all sorts of stuff and I've received them on the other side. And so like, I try not to have an ego about it, you know, like you just have to like know that everyone is suggesting these ideas because they're trying to make it better. And it's kind of up to you to take them or not. Like, um, so, you know, like when you sent notes, like they were great because they were super specific and really thorough and thoughtful. And I took some of them and I ignored some of them and some of them I couldn't do because of the footage that we had. And that's always going to be the case with any substantial list of notes you ever get. It's only going to be one of those three. It's either going to be a good idea or one you don't care for or one you can't do. That's it. Right. Or I feel like, at least for me, a lot of times I'll have an idea and I'll be like, oh, this will be really good if I do this. And then I try it in the edit and it just feels like too cutty or it doesn't work or it's too sure. big a cheat. Or So to me, it's like, here's a bunch of things I would try if I was editing this. Yeah. Yeah, um, ab- and I don't know that they'll work or not, but um, maybe they'll address this thing. And I think what you're saying about like taking notes personally, I actually take them the most personally when it's not my writing and I'm not in, oh, that in love with the material, but I feel like I've managed to make it work. And then someone's like, nah, it doesn't work. <laughs> and you're like, ah, yeah, yeah. I worked so hard and I, I've convinced yeah. myself that this is good. And now you've like reminded me that actually it's not that good. You know? <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty brutal. Um, yeah, but cool. So are you? So you said you're ninety five percent done. We're gonna do some drone shots. Yeah, we've got some drone shots to do, and then a little bit of light VFX basically gets us there. I think there's a couple music pieces that I, we might want to tweak a little bit that might adjust the edit, but like mostly there. Yeah, I want to sleep on it, but uh, a lot of good work, and it's clocking in at like. Eight minutes, two seconds exactly. So cool. I thought the um, length felt good. Yeah, to me. it feels good. I, you know, it's a funny thing because it's a kind of a chamber piece. You know, it's just two people in one space, and so it needs to feel like it has airiness and breadth, but it's also a comedy, so it still needs to have like a relatively high entertainment value. You know, like there's not a ton of huge laughs in the movie, and I don't think it's aspiring for that, but like. It still has to move and be quippy and fun and, you know, concise, basically. Right. Do you ever, like, so on on this specific piece, it stars two actors, your wife and another actor that's done a ton of stuff. Are you going to show it to them and get their feedback? Or, or do, you, no. do you do that ever? No. Yeah, no. I mean, I, yeah, I don't think that's, um, unless they're an EP in some way. Yeah, not really. I mean, I wouldn't be against it, but I I just find that whenever your face, when one's face is on camera, you just immediately, it's human nature to start thinking about a different set of things right? and and responding to them in a different way than any other person would. Right. Because you hear of like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, like Mm -hmm. all being very much involved in like the edits of their films. Yeah. But yeah, I guess they are producers. So They're producers. They're movie stars. They're the reason the movie exists in the first place. They got the movie greenlit. Right. And when I did, I did a, that TV movie forever ago, and the lead actress, Lori Loughlin, did actually say like, hey, I feel like there's a better take of me here, and I feel like this comes off as kind of inauthentic. Like, do you think you can find a, something, you know, a better version of that uh, on a few t- lines? And I think it's... I, I want her to really like the movie because I want her to promote the movie, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so 
I don't know. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Out of curiosity, how many people did you get notes from? Um, you know, just a handful on the picture edit because I was pretty. Yeah, I was pretty open with the script, and I took most of those notes. And then it was just kind of like basically, if I'd had some sort of interaction with a person recently, then I would be like, oh hey, you know, yeah, you should check this out. You know, it, it was not a, a really thought through or formal situation because also like to me, getting script notes is so much easier to implement those changes on the picture level. There's only so many things, you know, like there were plenty of instances where you were like, oh, hey, if you have this angle, I would cut to it there. And I didn't. And right. so like, I don't need to hear that six times, you know? It, yeah. It's funny because I, for some reason, I prefer giving notes on an edit as opposed to on a script because the script is just like so open to interpretation and it's so much like you are writing the things in your head and Mm -hmm. who am I to tell you like how to write it, you know? But in the picture, it's like you said, like you've already captured the footage. Now it's like your only choices are how you can rearrange it and how you can manipulate the sound, which is a lot more flexible in post than the picture. So to me, it might be like the engineer in me, but it's just so much easier for me to give notes on an edit because I understand the building blocks. And on a sure. script, there's no limitations. You can write anything. So it, it's harder for me to like know what's helpful and what's not on the, at the script level. I can say like, oh, I don't get this joke or here's an idea for something funny or right. something like that. But I, I don't feel comfortable saying like, oh, this is your twist should be that, you know, it, mm-hmm. Or this doesn't work from here. Yeah, because it might totally work. Well, and it's funny, now that I think of it, I have a lot more writer friends um, than I do director friends that I could be like, hey, I need notes on this short real quick. So like, there is a distinct difference between someone who understands and regularly executes ideas and a person who is kind of creating them from whole cloth. You know, and so it's it's just a different skill set. It's a different set, like, you know, the the notes that you get and the suggestions that you get from a director and a person who's really post-oriented are so different, even on a script level, than um, the other way around. So, right. Did you get notes from any editors? Uh, just the one that was cutting it. Yeah, no. Getting notes is also, it's a particular thing because it is labor-intensive and... Um, specialized and so yeah i didn't i didn't spread the the net quite as wide as normal i think on the edit right basically yeah i'm like i get real democratic with that stuff like if one person says this doesn't make sense and another person says this does make sense i'll try to ask like three more people Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and just kind of go with whoever you know like majority rules Right. I mean, it obviously depends on what it is. Not not a stylistic thing, but a clarity thing. You know, a funny thing that came up in the edit today was it's a rare circumstance where you had given a note where you were like, I think you should cut this bit out. And somebody uh, else said that's their favorite part. That ha- Yeah, that did happen, actually. Uh, in On the script note, uh, Madeline, our producer, was like, oh, I love, like, she wrote ha next to the, this certain <laughs> beat. Right. And... It was cut in a way or shot in a way that I could do, I could implement either note, no problem. There was no technical reason why it would slow things down or like make 
everything worked perfectly in both circumstances, which is relatively rare. You know, normally there you you blocked it a certain way, and so that's kind of just how the edit has to be, even if you agree with the note or vice versa. Or like you kind of have to maybe make a compromise in terms of pacing or flow or whatever. And this was a weird one where it was like all things are equal. It's really purely up to me, um, and I kept it. Damn it, Enlo. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about because <laughs> Chrissy turned her head twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, good honor. Uh, yeah, no, with comedy, it's so that's the other thing. Like something might read super funny in a script, but then, you know, the when you see it in in the piece, you realize like, oh, it's not, you know, it's changing the flow or it's like a funny joke, but it's unrelated to what has happened before and after it. Um but that, that is kind of the nature of like stylizing comedy. It's like, right, Family Guy is like famous for all these asides and non sequiturs and things of that nature. And if that's part of, if that is important to you to like establish that as part of your style, then obviously you keep it even though someone's like, you don't need that. Well, yeah, yeah. you don't need it, but it it's what I want to do. <laughs> so that's, I'm keeping it. Um, yeah, there is like a funny thing in comedy in particular where it's like, not every single joke advances plot or action or story. Sometimes it's just a joke. And, um, you know, especially I call it joke fatigue. If you are, if you watch things over and over and over again and you don't have fresh eyes, all of a sudden, you know, you're cutting jokes that would work in front of an audience because you're just sick of them. Right. Yeah. Comedy. It's the worst. Cool, man. Well, I'm super excited to see the next cut and kind of see... What you do, I just had an idea during this conversation that I'm going to make a short film and then post the first cut on the Just Shoot It website and just get a ton of feedback about how bad it is from the Just Shoot It audience. Ooh, that's fun. sift through it and then uh, ignore all of those people's notes. Um, <laughs> so before we get to our listener questions, just want to remind people to rate us on iTunes and also that we have a Patreon page. Uh we use our Patreon to pay our editors, and we are organizing a live event right now. And it's just a way to say that you appreciate the podcast and that it's uh, helping you out. Um, check our, out the Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash justshootitpod. And that's it. We appreciate it. Especially in tune, listeners will notice that we've been plugging a few patrons each episode at the top of the episode, thanking them. So it's pretty neat to hear your name out loud. I'm pretty fond of this, so... And if you want to hear your name every couple episodes, that's another thing. Yeah. You know, the last patrons we mentioned on the previous episode all got directing gigs after we mentioned them. I did hear that. Yeah, yeah. One got a three-picture deal. Yes. Pretty cool. I didn't know they did those anymore. Yeah. uh, He took three selfies. (laughs) If you'd like to hear your name at the top of the show, if you want a cool sticker, show your support to our editors, Chris and Jay. Help us out. Go to patreon.com slash justshootitpod. All right, Oren, let's dig into some listener questions. Hey, guys, just want to say a big uh, shout-out to everything that you've done. I'm a filmmaker in uh, Australia, in uh, Melbourne, um, and, you know, I, I run a business, AB Creative, and the, the the video projects that we work on, it's an overall cost, so there's never a, a like a director's, um, you know, fee, which, from what I understand, is, is around the 10% of the budget. Um, I am transitioning towards uh, becoming more of a director for hire, you know, director, probably second stage writer. 
Um, and the if the budget was say five hundred thousand, you would be talking ten percent being fifty grand. If it runs under budget, does it become you know a lesser amount? And if it runs over budget, does it become more of an amount? Like how does that sort of work on that side of things? Um, thanks very much. Awesome work. Love it. Um, and keep up the great work. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Uh, my Twitter handle is um, at Alon Baron, A-L-L-O-N-B-A-R-O-N. Speak to you soon. Thanks, guys. Bye. So, Alon asks about how directors are paid as a percentage of the budget. Now, I think he's talking specifically about commercials, right? Or yeah. Commercial production. Yeah. Anytime, I think... Anytime your rate is based off of the percentage, basically, I think is really what he's asking. But for the most most part, that tends to be um, the commercial rate. Yeah. Right. So what, what he was asking is, if you come under budget or you come over budget, does that percentage remain the same? So if, right. let's say you have $100,000 to do a commercial, it costs you $120,000, are you now going to get $1,200 instead of $1,000 because you've gone over budget? Um, or vice versa, if you've come in at $8,000, do you now only get $800 if you're getting 10% Correct. of the budget? Or, so this yeah, is nice sorry. and straightforward, I, actually. My math is all over the place. We have, like a clean, we have a clean answer for this one, which is nice. Or do you disagree, Oren? Well, I, I agree that we have a clean answer, which is no, your, your salary doesn't change if you go over or under. Right. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think the premise of the question has some some giant caveats. Um, well, first off, I think it's worth just kind of explaining. If you come in under budget, oftentimes, that's called underages, right? So oftentimes, um, the production company is incentivized in some way to do that, right? Like, oftentimes, underages come with, um, they get to keep that money, basically, or it's divided up amongst people. I know that sometimes an underage can mean a bonus for a certain company or a producer or things like that. So there are um, certain circumstances where underages do put money, does put money in other people's pockets. I, it's pretty rare that that's the director. And again, it, it makes a huge difference if you are also the producer and also the production company, which I suspect that in some cases, Elon is also in charge of the budget or potentially is privy to what the budget is. Because, you know, you and I, like these Kentucky Lottery spots you're doing, when I did these Xfinity spots, I don't see the line budget. I just know approximately what the budget is. I know what my rate is. And that's pretty much ever, the only stuff that's I the, ever see. I don't know if we did go. I mean, I know we went above budget on Xfinity because we flipped. But if we if that hadn't happened, I would have no idea if we went above or below. They might share that information with me or they might not. Right. Right. It, regardless, it would not affect my rate at all. And if you go over budget, that number doesn't go up because that would just give you an incentive to just spend like crazy, you know? <laughs> right. And there is this kind of common uh, knowledge in Hollywood that it's never a great idea to go. Obviously, you don't want to go really a lot above budget, but it's also not a great idea to go a lot below budget because you don't want to teach the people that are hiring you that you can do the work for less money. Yeah, all of these production companies are taking their margins. Those are baked into the budgets. So, you know, a production company needs to make a certain amount of money. And like, yeah, there's a little bit of padding in there. 
And it's nice if they get to take that home. But if a company is like, hey, we want a million-dollar commercial, and they hand them a $500,000 commercial, no one's happy. Right. And companies know that, like, you know, then you don't get to make another million-dollar commercial. Exactly. Um, Yeah. But I guess the addendum to this is that this 10% idea is a general place to start from. But I think, you know, if you're making a $5,000 commercial... And ten, you know, ten percent is really low. But if you're making a million dollar commercial, ten percent might be a little high. So, right. and then a lot of times, I mean, you and I have both done things where it's like a really cool job and a really cool premise, and we're gonna, we don't have the budget to support what we want to do, but we want to give it a shot anyway, and we will take a much lower rate just for the opportunity to go all out, to get that steady cam, to get the techno crane or to get this actor and to get this location. Um, that, you know, he, I, I think of the director, part of, part of the job of a person that is what we traditionally call above the line, right? Like a director, a producer, an editor, a DP, is that you, one of the things, one of the reasons you have a lot of influence over the final product is because you could literally say, okay, well, if we don't have the money for this dolly, then take it out of my pay, right? It's not something that you, I would encourage anyone to do, and you should never do that, but being one of the kind of main creative voices on a commercial means there's some flexibility with how you structure everything, and you, you can right. influence that. So the 10% thing is like a good guideline to start off with, but... Uh, I wouldn't not take a job because I was getting paid less than 10%. And there are some jobs I wouldn't take unless I was getting paid much more, you know, way, yeah. way more because I, I know the thing that I really think about is like, how much time am I going to spend on this? Mm-hmm. You know, and what is your time e- worth? Yeah. Right. So I usually think about weeks and how, how much I'm going to make per week. Right. And also, um, is this project going to be creatively fulfilling and will it help your career in some way? You know, yeah. there are other going to go on the real. Yeah. So cool to hear listeners. Um, in this case, all the way from Australia. So thanks for listening, man. Next, we have an email from Supa Rubes. Apologize if I'm mispronouncing the name. Supa says, hey, guys, loving the podcast makes my two hour journey into work bearable. I have a two prong question. I'm currently in pre-production for a short horror that is a film on its own and also something I would like to use as a proof of concept for a feature I'm writing on spec. Question one, is it better to release via the festival circuit or online if my aim is to get industry eyes on it? And question two, if I do release online, is YouTube or Vimeo the better option for my goals? Um, first of all, as great usual, question. This is like yes. super thoughtful, really insightful. Uh, these are the right questions to be asking exactly when you are in this stage of development on your short. So good luck. Warren, yes. let's start with question one. Is it better to release via the festival circuit or online if her aim is to get industry eyes on it? Well, uh, as usual, the question that 90% of our audience hates is, does Supa live in an industry town or not? I'm going to stop you right there. I think that Answering this question doesn't have a ton of bearing on whether or not they live in an industry town. So I want I want to hear more about this point of view of of where of their geographic location being a part of the equation. Well, because the the question is, should I get it online, which lets anyone anywhere in the world see it, or should I focus more on festivals, which by definition are just a ge- much more geographically connected, 
right? If sure. if it is a festival in LA or New York or Chicago or London, there's going to be travel costs associated. It's, it's going to be expensive to go be at that festival with your uh, short trying to get industry people involved in it. If you happen to live in LA or you happen to live in Park City or you happen to live in Austin, which is a story we just keep seeing, hearing over and over on this podcast, which is Texas-based filmmakers getting their film into South by Southwest and that being a launching ground for their career. I, if Supa lived in Park City, I don't think that helps you get into Sundance. Like, I think South by is kind of an interesting outlier in that way. Do you know what I mean? Right. I think if you lived in Park City and you were like a friend of all the people that are running Sundance, it probably helps your chances to get into Sundance. Um, but also, right, well, if you do get into Sundance, you're there. It doesn't cost you anything to be there. Yeah, you I know? guess that's Sundance, is, obviously, is... yeah, it's a special case because anyone would go to Sundance if they got in. Yeah, well, and also all of the programmers live here in Los Angeles. But yeah, I, I think we're, there's an article about this question that we've been talking about a lot about lately, right? That from the shortoftheweek.com yeah. crew. Uh, and they, oh. their opinion is unequivocally put it online to get as many people to see it as possible. However, and if you want you, industry people. I, th- I think part of that strategy is also dovetailing with a big buzzy festival. So premiering on a festival and then capitalizing off of that that momentum as quickly as possible by putting it online and letting people who have maybe heard about your movie because it's playing at a South by or a Sundance or somewhere fancy, then everybody gets to see it. I guess if I actually remove Supa's questions from the equation and just give my thoughts on what I would do if I made a proof of concept that also worked as a short is sure. Of course I would like submit it to some festivals that I think are worthwhile or local or easy for me to get to or or just seem fun. But as a proof of concept, I would just contact industry people directly uh, and say, Hey, here's my proof of concept. Here's the feature script. What do you think? You know? And obviously if it gets into a great festival, it's great to say this was at Sundance, but if it gets into like my neighbor's backyard film festival, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't help as much. So yeah, well, let's let's get a little more specific though, because this is a horror short, right? So like, I think certainly, you know, playing Fantastic Fest or some other sort of genre, like high right. profile, bloody genre disgusting. Space. Yeah, there's actually some great horror genre festivals in the UK, also. Yeah, I mean that's a whole world awesome. in a. A zone that I'm not super duper familiar with, but um, certainly has its own ecosystem. And I think that having laurels from a, a reputable horror festival when you're going to pitch a horror company is helpful. Right. But that said, let's. So you obviously used to be in development at a studio. Would you care if somebody sent you a short film and said, hey, we want to develop this into a movie? Would do you care how well that short did at film festivals or would you just look at the um, content? That's a great question. I think that people in development are constantly um, meeting with really talented people who have great ideas. Great ideas are a dime a dozen, right? So the, the thing about it is that um, you need a great idea that, that you can then sell to your boss for some reason. So is there recognizable talent attached? Uh, do they have some sort of festival credibility? Like you need other outside signifiers to say, hey, this is good. It's not just my taste. Objectively, this is good. So does it have a bajillion views? 
did it play South by, you know, all of those things help your case basically. So like, you know, I looked at, I, I always go back to the workaholics. Those videos didn't have a ton of views. Uh, no, no film festival ever played any of their sketches to my knowledge and right. no one cared. Right. And they made workaholics and it was incredible and a huge hit, blah, blah, blah. So like, is it a barrier to entry? No. But does it make things easier and better? Yes. Yeah. I guess it's just not It's just not that important. Like, if you get rejected from every film festival, it doesn't mean anything about the prospect of... It, it, I mean, yeah. it might mean that, you know, you, you have some work to do on the short or the proof of concept, but I wouldn't let that stop me from right. trying to get it. It could also mean that, you know, you submitted the same year that a movie that had some similar superficial aspects of it. You know, they were like, oh, well, we've got too many single take shorts. So um, we're going to just pick our favorite. And that's that. Right. But also just kind of relying on industry people to watch shorts at film festivals is just, you know, it's a little bit of a needle in a haystack type of situation. If I, if I was really trying to right. get industry eyes on a short film, uh, I would just try to send it to people, you know? I'd post it on Facebook and I'd say, hey, does anyone know anyone at Lionsgate or at Blumhouse? Or I, I would really try right. to like go straight to the connection that I'm trying to. And even, you know, pitch people to make short horror indie films. I'd look at other indie films that are in the scope of the movie that I'm trying to make and try to contact those producers. Um, yeah, so I think, I think we're circling around kind of a broader answer to this question. And I think it's twofold, right? I think there's the question about industry people and then there's a question about audience. So, you know, to answer the second part of your question, YouTube versus Vimeo or, and, you know, festival circuit versus online, there's the question of um, who is going to like your movie, right? So in this case, it's a short horror film. So the obvious choices are, horror industry people. That's a pretty tight knit community, you know? So like you can figure out what, who the players are and what those companies are getting your movie to them is going to be key. Right. Um, and those people tend to be at horror film festivals, but also there are specific online communities and there's other conventions and there's a lot of different ways to get to them. So that's one thing, right? The in horror industry people are specific, right? Just like every other niche. We talk about comedy all the time. We talk about UCB all the time because that's just a, um, we figured out, oh, these are, these are the hot spots for where are, where the industry professionals tend to congregate, right? So figuring that out for your movie is important. And then also on the same uh, token, like, uh, the online communities that are going to like your movie are, are different for each, as different as each movie is, right? So YouTube versus Vimeo is your movie. Like a little more artsy? Is it a documentary? Does it have real visual flair? Then maybe Vimeo is right. Does it have an influencer? Or is it maybe a little broader or play to a younger audience? Then maybe YouTube is right. You know, is it a minute long? Maybe it's Instagram then. You know, the, so it's hard to have an exact answer for each. But I think if you're thinking about your audience, both the broad audience and then the narrow one of industry, that's going to help set you set, set yourself up for success and get your movie to the right people to the people who are going to love it the most which is really what we're trying to say yeah i totally agree so good luck with uh, yeah and send it to us yeah we'll check it out can't wait um cool well thanks super 
Next, we got a voicemail. Hey, I'm Matt and Oren. This is Daniel Zagayer, first-time caller, long-time listener. I uh, just wanted to say that the show has been hugely inspirational and amazing, so thank you for all that you guys do. Um, I just recently uh, sat down and had a meeting with a fellow director after uh, meeting them at a film festival, Dances with Films, where my film Evening at the Diner premiered, and it turned out to be a lot more beneficial than I thought meeting with another director, being a director myself. I actually learned way more than I expected. Uh, One of the things we discussed was a mentor, and I hear a lot about the importance of mentors and how much it can help people in their careers, and I was wondering if you guys had any advice about how to reach out to a mentor, what's the best way to go about it, and what do you do once you find a mentor? How often do you meet with them? Uh, Any information is very helpful, and thanks so much. I look forward to hearing your answer. And you can find me at Instagram at Zagayer, that's Z-A-G-A-Y-E-R. Thanks so much. Well, this is a great question from Daniel. I'm actually really curious to see what Matt says, because I think he has a lot more experience with that idea than I do. Um, Yeah, I... I think you're overestimating me. Um, but you were you went to film school. <laughs> did you not have like a mentorship program? Maybe, but I did not participate. <laughs> I, I it's hard to really illustrate how dumb I was in film school. Just a, kind of like walking along. Like, oh, I love movies. Um, right. So just to just to summarize, Daniel is asking about how important a mentor is in the film industry, like another director maybe that's more experienced and how you find a mentor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think um, there are a few kind of very clear or delineated pathways of like shadowing, interning, things like that. And, you know, I think you and I both have had um, some experience and mixed success with both of those. You know, they've always been really positive experiences. But I think that the more fruitful mentors that I've had have really been, um, you know, more in the realm of like coworkers, honestly, like people that I could turn to to ask a question of like, I don't know how to navigate this space or that, or, you know, they were more kind of office job mentors, actually. And that the filmmaking, I don't think I've had a, a real director mentor in the same way. What about you, Warren? I don't think I've had like a mentor per se, at least I've never used that word. There were a couple filmmakers early in my career, like Mitch and Phil, uh, the book that have both been on the podcast before that were just making a lot of movies and I was friends with them and I worked on their movies and I really learned about how they sold and what worked and what didn't work and how they casted, you know, and how they shot things and how they scripted. And I, I learned a lot about filmmaking from just like hanging out with them and seeing their career and it gave me a lot of inspiration to feel confident that I could do it myself because I kind of saw how they were doing it. Um, but yeah, I, I've never really kind of seeked out. Um, is that a word? I never like went sought. to find, I never sought a mentor. I did shadow, you know, a couple times and it was okay. Yeah. If you were in a bind, if you needed advice from someone, did you have some, do you have someone you could call? Yeah. You know, this was a long time ago, but during the podcast, I was like doing some, reality tv type stuff some unscripted stuff and i was really nervous about it and i had asked some friends if anyone knew about like a director producer that worked on a lot of unscripted reality tv shows to that i could meet with and just kind of go over my plan with them uh 
and that happened. And I have I have director friends that have asked me like, hey, can you show me what your shot lists look like? Or, hey, can I just like meet up with you and tell you this my plan for how to shoot this? And maybe we can brainstorm like what angles seem valuable. Uh, and I've done that with people too. I mean, I think, you know, a big part of why we do this podcast is so that we get to talk to other directors because it's not something mm-hmm. that you ever do on set really. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, I was, I wanted to direct something in the, like an Adam Ruins Everything style. So I had lunch with Matt Pollock, who directs Adam Ruins Everything and asked him, hey, how do you guys shoot that? Where do you put your cameras? How do you, when do you do the blocking and how is it so seamless and how are the transitions worked out? Uh, and I have, I'm having coffee with Matt Barber tomorrow, another TV director person that, uh, loves kind of trading tips and tricks. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in that way, it's like a mentorship. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I I never thought a mentorship is anywhere near as important as like creating your, you know, finding your people. Yeah, you know, now that I think of it, I, I feel like I, um, my mentors were all like I said, like people that I would work with and kind of could ask questions. I mean, certainly, I guess now that I think of it, Kent Alterman was like a pretty big influence for me. Um, but I think that the other reason that you and I started this podcast is because we like helping people. And so we, um, I think that you and I both were often asked by younger filmmakers and continue to be asked by younger filmmakers, like, oh, like, you know, to show people the ropes a little bit. And so I think that, there's probably a certain type of person that makes it known, you know, like you kind of hear through the grapevine, like, Oh, my friend, so-and-so has done that before. And they're really generous with their time. Maybe, you know, give them a call or they, they would know what to do. They'll help you out. That sort of thing. And so I think that, um, sometimes people sort of cultivate that, that sort of community, you know, but I think film festivals are the other way to like, whether, you're on equal footing or someone's a little bit further along in their career than the other. A film festival is another great place to meet other filmmakers that you can kind of connect with on that level. Yeah, totally. I guess my kind of closing advice for Daniel is like find people that you're really impressed by and try to hang out with them as mm-hmm. much as you can. Uh, yeah. And help them out, you know, yeah. be generous. Yeah. And it, it's not just on the directing, you know, obviously on writing for me, editing, just watching editors work and watching people do visual effects and all those things is really inspirational for me. When I was at Disney, the other directors there were doing things that we were always kind of trying to outdo each other. And that was kind of a mentorship program too. So hang out with people that you respect and are impressed by and you'll get better. Thanks for listening, Daniel. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. So our next question is from Allie Kornfeld, friend of the pod and also friend of Friend in real life. What up, Ali? She was, she was and still is the writer's assistant on Warigami, the show that I was working on earlier this year. So Ali says, hey, Matt Noren, I'm a longtime listener and big fan of the show. A friend and I would like to hire a young director for our ultra low budget workplace comedy web series who has a lot of experience directing theater, but no experience directing film. Part of the reason we want to hire her is she seems to really connect with the material, has brought a lot of funny visual ideas for inserts to the script and is very enthusiastic about getting to direct. Obviously, we'll need to pair her with an experienced DP who can take charge of the technical while she focuses on the performance. But how can we mitigate the risk of the following while still fostering an atmosphere of trust on the set? Uh, And she lists four things that she was concerned about. Making sure that the director and the DP understands how the shots will cut together. 
uh, framing shots, like does she have a good eye? Can the DP do this part? Uh, number three, eye lines. And number four, crossing the line, which is kind of uh, related, right? Like directional continuity. And then she closes by saying, is it rude to ask if she's read any books on directing or to recommend she reads a particular one? She seems very intelligent and thoughtful. Thanks again for sharing your knowledge and creating this community. Hey, thanks, Ali. Uh, great question. Yeah, really good um, question. Boy, it makes me think back to Squaresville, which was my low-budget slice of life web series and i think about how little i understood of all of those four things that you're describing what um, you went to film school you knew all of them um no man i'm telling you <laughs> you were the worst student i well i watched a lot of movies right it, i went to film school but it was like i uh got an english degree <laughs> i just instead of reading i watched movies um okay so let's go let's go one by one on these Making sure the DP, uh, they slash the DP understands how shots will cut together. That's the big one, honestly. I think understanding the way that an edit works is the one, in my experience, that takes um, the most just actual, honest-to-goodness experience. It's hard to learn from a book. It's hard to not. It's hard to know how to do it without having just done it before. Right. And And the way producers mitigate this a lot when they're working with newer directors is they just demand that they shoot coverage. Hey, can you just make sure to get like a, a close-up of each character in each scene and a, and a wide yeah. shot? And I would say, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's genuinely pretty good adv- uh, advice because... And that's kind of like remember, TV style, right? Yeah. You know, if you have two clean singles and a, a wide master, you're going to be able to cut the scene together. And I think that um, when I was younger knowing that having that up in my back pocket that maybe it wouldn't be the best looking scene but that i wasn't gonna ruin it with a mistake uh made me feel better you know yeah i mean you know ali says that they have an ultra low budget but obviously if you can get a second camera uh it almost saves could save any scene even if it's not quite shot Mm -hmm. you know in the most perfect way yeah yeah because there are going to be things that this director learns along the way and so it sounds like the instincts that you have of understanding performance and adding jokes and all of that, I think, um, is right on and that this person has a, will be excited to learn. But yeah, I think coverage is probably the way that you make sure that um, you have a show at the end of the day. Right. And I think, I guess, uh, just to rattle off a few obvious first-time director mistakes is I've seen a lot of new directors cut way too early uh, in a scene, you know, or not give like an exit to a scene, not let things play out or not let characters exit or enter, you know, kind of those transitional pieces that you wish you have in the edit. A lot of people, I think newer directors will be like, that was great. Cut, 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 you know, like let's move on. Yeah. 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 Let them don't call cut until, you know, people have really finished their thought and make sure that you have an in and an out of the scene. That's really good. Yeah. So and that's just, just a note to give. Um, so the next one is framing shots. Does she have a good eye? Can the DP do this part? This, I think, is all... The answer is all over the place, right? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a workplace comedy web series. So I think there is some flexibility. Like, if you think of a show like Workaholics, which I'm not super familiar with, but in general... Or even like The Office, like those shot, those shows are shot really well. But in my memory, like just a wide shot and close-ups on the characters would make most scenes work. Yeah, 
Yeah, there's not anything especially tricky with that stuff. Um, yeah, workplace comedy is honestly, it's kind of hard to make it look incredible, but it's also hard, hard to, mess, to it mess it up. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at corporate, corporate's an incredible looking show. That's a, a pure, pure workplace comedy. Right. And, um, but in terms of like framing and composition, I think any DP will, when you say, hey, let's frame up for a medium shot on this character, they'll probably frame them a little bit, you know, a third in, in the right third or the left third, depending on what direction they're looking in. And I, I do think the DP protects the composition and the lighting to some degree with minimal input from the director. And that's when yeah. the director can makes the biggest difference. You know, hey, I want my character in the center of the frame instead of on the side. Yeah, I think that um, making sure that all of you have had some conversations about maybe what influences or comps or philosophy you want to share, I think will go a long way with this. So, you know, when I'm shooting a show, it's pretty rare that I go walk over to the DP and say, hey, this is exactly how and where I want this single to be, right? They kind of know because we've already had multiple conversations about how I like the singles to be shot in this episode, you know, and unless it's a special, like, more or less they know. Like we walk up, we we walk to basically the same spot for where the camera's going to be, you know, without having to talk about it too much. And that's because we have that set of guidelines and philosophies um, already. And so I think that early on, your director can talk with the DP and they can say like, hey, these are the things that I like about these shows or these movies or these paintings or these music videos or whatever your reference uh, references are. They can talk about what they like about it. The DP can help translate that and explain to them the specific things that are going into that image. And that really educates them. That's how I learned most things. I feel like it's like, you know, saying, oh, I want to do this. And then them being like, oh, do you mean that you want it on a hundred millimeter lens or that you, you know, like a darker background or the lighting? What is it about this image that you like? And that breaking that stuff down in advance helps you um, create a, a visual language for the show. And then when you're on set, you know, like Orrin said, the DP can kind of protect that idea pretty quickly. Yeah. And then finally, in terms of eyelines and crossing the line, obviously on any normally budgeted shoot, you would have a script supervisor that base that basically keeps track of that stuff. If you don't have a script supervisor, cause it's a very low budget. Yeah. You just kind of bring it up, say it to the DP, be on set alley yourself and just make sure that we're not crossing the line and we're not, you know, messing up eyelines. And, uh, and I think there's a non rude way to say like, Hey, I know most of your experience uh, to the director. I know most of your experience is on stage and not in front of the camera. Are you familiar with the 180 degree rule? And do you know how to set up eyelines? Because I would love for any time you're not sure of that, any of those things for you to come and ask me or ask the DP. Right. And a DP will look out for you. I'm, you know, I think that, um, I bet there's a great YouTube video or two out there that helps explain this stuff that, you know, would make you feel better about being able to double check things. And also that you could send along to this director just to be like, Hey, I know this is a thing that's complicated for people. It can trip them up. I found this great resource. Take a look. Cause really it's just, you know, if you have a video that illustrates, Oh, you know, understanding the way a character looks in frame relative to how that connects them to the geographic space and how you can control that, 
I'm sure there's a video or two. There's probably a thousand that do a, a very clear job of explaining how it all works. Um, yeah, I agree. So the final kind of question is, is it rude to ask if she's read any books on directing or recommend that she reads a particular one? I'm trying to find the book that I read when I first started directing. It was not like a famous one at all, but it was really much, really the basics of like where to put cameras and how to block people. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's obviously on directing film by David Mamet and there's like the Sidney Lumet book, but they don't talk very specifically about technique, even rebel without a crew. They talk a little bit yeah. more about the big picture stuff. Um, but you know, if you go to Barnes and Noble, there's for sure books there. You can just kind of look through. And like you said, probably find a intro to directing video on YouTube. So yeah, I, cause I think that it sounds like they're hiring a person who's got a lot of artistic merit. And so they really just want to make sure that they don't inadvertently make an easy technical mistake. Right. And so I think those kind of dry YouTube videos are going to be the lifesaver on that stuff. Yeah. Um, And I I emailed this directly to Allie, but I think the number one thing as a producer that you can do with a new director to feel better about everything is just demand a shot list. Uh, it's happened to me many times. Uh, it's happened when I worked at Disney. The first few things I directed, the head of the our department asked me to see my shot list, and I was like not really making shot lists at that time, and I got super annoyed, and I was like, "Ugh, they don't trust me," you know. But it, it was smart of him to ask me because it forced me to like share my plan with everyone, which is part of the job of the director. So, ask for a shot list. I think that'll get you really far and then review the shot list and be don't be afraid to like just be curious about it like oh are you gonna get yeah. a shot of this or are you, are you gonna get an insert are you gonna you know do is this yeah, gonna I, be boring whatever i think you know there's a way to learn what how collaborative this person is right like asking questions because you're curious not because you're second guessing them but because you want to know and understand better and maybe plus it and help them you know if they have a problem talking you through their vision then you know maybe they're defensive about something or maybe they're not the right fit but uh, it sounds to me like you pick a person you picked a person that you really like and that um, they're going to be really receptive to working with you to make sure that the show is awesome yeah agreed go get it ali uh, awesome cool well our next question comes from steve hi I am Shreve, and I am a new filmmaker, I suppose. I haven't really made anything. I've just been learning and and trying to get my bearings on what to do. And I am wondering where to go with the inability to have crew or actors. I live in a small town, and I don't have very many friends or um, family that could help me make videos or would be willing to or can have the time or whatever. Um, what kind of advice could you give me and other filmmakers in my position um, on that topic? Thank you. Okay, so Steve uh, lives in a small town. He doesn't have a huge network or community yet, um, and he's trying to figure out how to still follow his dreams and make these movies. What's the answer? Uh, you know, well, the first thing that comes to mind, and I bet we'll probably work through a few other op- opportunities, uh, I always think of animation. You know, I, I grew up 
um, like my, I, I grew up with just a camera and some toys and like that was kind of my very, very first introduction into filmmaking. I, you know, I think of like the uh, extra credit studios guys um, where they were just like, oh, wh- like how do we make these things? We've got these ideas um, and they just started cranking out stop motion videos. Uh, and so that's kind of the first impulse for me, but maybe that's because that's that was my intro into filmmaking in the first place. What about you, Warren? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, when I started making film, I was an engineer, and I worked with a bunch of engineers that had, it's not that they had zero interest in film, but they had zero aspirations to work in film. So I did live in San Francisco, which is not a small town. I found every, like, kind of city like club, I think there's this website called meetup.com that kind of finds people in your area that have similar interests. So I would definitely like try to find a film meetup group. Uh, and then like Matt said, just make your own stuff. Go, you know, make documentaries. Do record yourself doing a voiceover about your family. Uh, you know, if you have kids or a spouse or a, one friend that's willing to like record you acting in something, Uh, go do it. Make a story about, I just saw someone post in the indie film community group a video about a jogger. It's like just one girl jogging and then someone kills her, you know? Uh, (laughs) It was a horror short. So it's like you literally need one or two other people. So if you work with someone and just ask them if they're willing to help you out um, or if you don't want to do that and want to just kind of start editing, doing it like messing around with, footage you find or footage you shoot on your cell phone or whatever uh, you can do that but I do think filmmaking is a super collaborative process and that's what is fun about it and so just find people beg people (laughs) when I was not in LA and when I was like just surrounded by engineers I like literally would talk to someone about cooking and be like hey do you want to come like cook for my shoot (laughs) <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, we kind of need you to stand over here and just be in the shot and say this thing, you know? And I would just like force people to be in my things. I think also it's easy to underestimate how cool it is to be in a movie. And so, Steve, if you're, the crew is a, is a slightly different deal, but like asking people to be in a movie, to star in a movie, or like you wrote a role for them, or even holding auditions you know, it can be really surprising how um, people are excited by that and galvanized by that. And so, um, you know, I think putting yourself out there, trying to hold auditions maybe in a community center or, um, you know, posting, you know, on Craigslist or, or, you know, even like next door or something like that. You know, if there's a theater community or like a local theater or, uh, you know, a public ac- access network, any sort of hub that you can kind of tap into um, and start volunteering for other people um, and other artists. I think that's your best bet. You know, that kind of, that supposes that your community is large enough to support those um, communities. But, you know, I think every high school has got a theater program, you know, uh, they're local colleges, junior colleges, kind of tapping into those networks, I think will be your best bet. And look, if that's not for you, uh, there are plenty of great like experimental filmmakers and independent filmmakers that have made really out there interesting, unique films as the result of not being a part of that network. And so I think don't, um, 
don't dismiss that. But if you're like, hey, I want to make like kind of big ensemble comedies, you know, then it's time to go out and meet an ensemble of comedic actors. Yeah, but I think sometimes necessity creates, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, Steve. So let us know whether you want to dive into your local community in some way and, and build that network or if it's something where you kind of, you go lone wolf style and, and right. invent a brand new style of filmmaking. Shoot a story about your dog. Sure. Um, I do find that like if you do make a short film, even 100% by yourself, and you put it on Facebook, people will come out of the woodwork and kind of say like, oh, hey, if you make something else, let me know. I mean, my brother is an engineer also in San Francisco, and he had no friends that were involved in film, and he found you know a bunch of random people in San Francisco, and now they work on things together all the time. Well, and I think if you look at filmmakers that you know recruit interesting people, people who maybe you wouldn't always uh, see in front of camera in Hollywood movies, they make incredible, interesting, unique films. And so that could be your superpower. So let us know how it goes, Steve. Send us your stuff. Yeah. Keep shooting it. Thanks, Steve. Okay, final question from Jesse in Austin, Texas. I'm Jesse. I'm 20 years old, and I'm currently living in Austin, Texas. And in two weeks, I'll be directing a pilot for a 10-episode series that I've been working on with some close friends of mine over the last year. It's based on a short film we made a year ago that's gotten a tiny, tiny fan base. Uh, we actually did a Kickstarter for it, um, which reached and surpassed its goal a few days ago, which is pretty darn cool. So I've got two questions for you guys regarding this project. Um, one, with this being a pretty low-budget project, what element should I be focusing on as the director that will help sell the show? or help, I guess, get people interested in it. And my second question is, after the project's done, what's the next step for somebody who has minimal connections to people working in film and so on? Uh, so thanks, guys. I love y'all's podcast. It's been super encouraging, and it's actually it's one of the reasons that I am where I am on this project. Uh, oh, and for those interested, the project is called Detective Max Danger. You can find us on Instagram at Detective Max Danger, and you can find me on Instagram at Yosej. Y O S E J J. Thanks, guys. Hey, Jesse. Thanks so much for listening to the show and dropping us a line. Uh, Detective Max Danger. All right. So Jesse wants to know. Basically, he doesn't have any Hollywood connections. He wants to know what he should be focusing on to get this show on people's radars and get it sold. Yeah, so I guess my first question, which is always my first question on something like this, is why 10 episodes? Um, like, and you, you know, we've discussed this before, but what's the advantage of shooting 10 episodes of like a no budget show that you're trying to sell and gain interest in and build a fan base out of? Like, why make 10 when you can make five and have twice as much money per episode or twice as many resources, right? What do you yeah. think? Yeah. Uh, well, so I totally hear that. I, you know, I think that going back to Squaresville, you know, we did two seasons, 16 episodes a season, plus a ton of, like, Q&As and ancillary content and stuff. So uh, basically an equal amount of ancillary content. 
And the reason that I did that was because uh, I needed to build myself a runway to build an audience that I needed, you know, I'd seen plenty of web series that people had done that were like four episodes long and like people didn't have time to find them. You know, they were already released and up and done and, you know, people weren't talking about them because it was already over. And so that's the reason why I would for that. So, you know, I think that there's some logic and I understand it's okay to be like, because I wanted to. So right. 10 episodes. No. Yeah, for for sure. If you if your kind of goal is to tell this fully formed story and show how a character evolves over an arc. Um, and also, I guess, to Jesse's point, he did do a Kickstarter for this and raised money and said, hey, with this money, we're going to make 10 episodes of this show. So... I guess he's kind of obligated to make 10 episodes. Um, so I think given that, if I was directing a show like this, the thing I would focus on is just really what makes it special, what makes it unique, what makes it pop. I'd probably try to make uh, each episode special in some way so that maybe you've made 10 episodes and you think two of them are really amazing that you could send those around and show them to people and share them with someone um, even if they only have like a few minutes to watch. Uh, I, I guess that's that's what I would focus on is like less about like homages and more about just like making something special and unique. Mm -hmm. and, and again, that's what I would focus on if you want to help sell the show and have it stick out as something, you know, that's that's uniquely made by you and that someone would hire you to do. Um, but, so I, I don't know if that's that's an, a super important goal, though to be honest. Yeah, I think that maybe we could take a step back a little bit and and talk about... So, Oren, you and I kind of came of age in the world of web series back when there were far lower expectations of what a web series could be and if it could be profitable and all that. You know, doing a web series in a lot of ways when we first started out was like, um, wouldn't it be funny if our friends saw this? Like, wouldn't it be cool if a 1,000 or 2,000 or 100,000 people saw it? And like the idea of doing a professional web series wasn't really um, on the radar. Like there was always the guild and there was always, you know, those handful of like big hit shows. But in a lot of ways, it was an opportunity just to kind of like get people together to do a thing that maybe people would see and like you would have a cool time doing it and like you would get some real practice in. And so... I, I think that in the same way that short films can be a showcase or they can also just be training wheels, you know, I think that um, because now you know that short films can go to huge festivals and you know that they can be turned into movies and you know that web series can sell to other bigger places, there's a lot more uh, pressure on people that they put on themselves to like make this huge awesome thing. And I wonder if Jesse maybe like just kind of recalibrating your goals to not worry about big time Hollywood connections or sales and just like honing your craft and having a good time and um, figuring out what you like to do best and what you're really good at um, over the course of 10 episodes uh, maybe is the thing worth focusing on the most. Yeah. I think Matt's answer is actually perfect for once. Yeah, I what? agree. It's, <laughs> no I'm, I'm just kidding but uh i think that yeah what matt is saying is exactly right like 
don't worry about Hollywood. Just make like the show that you love and that cracks you up and that you're excited to show people and ideally build an audience, you know, and that then you have you can share that with industry people or you can submit it to festivals or you can you know uh, there's a bunch of online film festivals now too that you can send it to and tv film festivals and things of that nature but i i really wouldn't focus on that at this point because um you know i i, I don't know that like making kind of an ultra low budget web series is really something that you make to sell and to like get into Hollywood I think it's more of just like you're starting to like define yourself as like a filmmaker and a director and Mm this will be part of your portfolio and what is like your calling card as a filmmaker and just focus on making it as good as it can be you know like the the thing that excites you the most and cast like the actors that you love the most and get awesome shots that you think would be great to have and funny performances and you know whatever whatever is the whatever is the reason you're making this um and that it excites you focus on that and like matt said i know it's not a satisfactory answer but just don't worry about the hollywoodness of it at this point and also that's not to say don't take it seriously that's the opposite like this is important valuable stuff um to find your voice to practice to get like a really sharpened knife, you know, to really hone your skills is really, really essential. And doing 10 episodes of a, of a series is like, I think the fastest way to do that. We were just joking about how little I knew when I started Squaresville and how much better I was at the end. Um, and that made me capable and ready to start directing professionally. But Squaresville was not the initial plan of like, I'm going to make my living off of, or this is my meal ticket in any capacity. It was really just like make a calling card. Right. And that was my third web series. Right. Well, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of like the very first OK Go video, you know, where it's just the band members dancing in the backyard shot on like a handy cam on a mm-hmm. tripod. Like there's no way those guys um, were thinking, hey, what can we make that will stick out that will get like Hollywood to see us or the record industry to see us or that will make us famous? They were like, this is just hilarious and it's awesome and let's just make this right like like think of your favorite things that kind of started small and i just imagine none of them are like super calculated in terms of like catching a specific person's attention you know yeah they absolutely. they succeed because of the passion behind them for the content awesome well thanks so much jesse godspeed um, yeah, let us know let how us it goes know. yeah and uh just because matt and i saw the your kickstarter campaign check out channel 101 it's uh this group of people that make really funny short parody series and they remind me a lot of your show and it might be some inspiration and a great destination for a show like yours it's where dan Harmon, the creator of rick and morty and community got started he actually started channel 101 right yeah yeah him and rob schraub was another awesome director yeah so check that out well that's it we got through all our big listener questions we did it Awesome. Another good one in the can, Oren. Great work. Thank you. Zalmi. Um, good work to you, too. Uh, should we hop into some unpaid endorsements? Unpaid endorsements. My unpaid endorsement um, comes via Maureen Barucha, previous guest and current Facebook friend of mine. Maureen has been posting um, 
basically nonstop about the behind the scenes stunts <laughs> of Mission Impossible, of, of Mission Impossible Fallout, and I'm enjoying all of them. So, Maureen, if you were listening, you're doing God's work. Thank you so much. Um, and so there was one in particular I will have in the show notes, but just about uh, how Tom Cruise did a you know 35 million um, p- skydiving routines before he got it right, and uh, you know. You've heard a lot about the stunts in these movies. That's kind of like the big selling point at this point. But uh, Fallout was incredible. And those stunts are really great. And there's something about somebody being that committed to being a movie star. And um, just going all out that we don't really have in movies anymore. And it's a thing that I really appreciate. So, you know, God bless Tom Cruise being a friggin' maniac and like jumping out of an airplane 200 times. So that he gets a shot right. I know. Talk about a comeback. That guy is like at the top of his game. And the, I just saw the movie last night and he is like so good. It's yeah. Insane. So good. That movie is pretty rad. Yeah. So check out Mission Impossible Fallout behind the scenes. If you, I mean, probably everyone that listens to this podcast has already seen all those videos. You've, you've, it feels like it because you've heard all the hype of like Tom Cruise has done this, Tom Cruise has done that. But like really just sitting down and spending seven minutes to watch one of these videos puts it in perspective. And also I think is a genuinely, you, you know, you catch cool little pieces of what um, the different ways that they capture all of these different insane stunts. So they've got helmet rig cams, they've got all sorts of crash cams, they've got, you know, follow cams and um all sorts of stunt drivers, and it's incredible. So I recommend it. Oren, what you got? Yeah, one last thing about that is I heard I read this interview with Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director, and he mm-hmm. said that for all the big action set pieces, he didn't even know, he didn't even have locations for them when they were already like in pre-production. He just asked the location scout to give him the best, most amazing-looking locations they can find, and they're like, okay, well, what is the scene that needs these locations. And Christopher McQuarrie was like, I don't know. You should tell me the locations first, then I'll write the action scenes for and those I'll locations. Drive a motorcycle through it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he really, he was, he said whenever he writes the action first, like the locations they find to make it work, like have no scope and mm-hmm. feel really small and not amazing looking. So for this movie, he tried to do it backwards where he wrote the action wow. to the locations and I think it works. Yeah. Um, okay, so what I have is, we'll put a link to this in the show notes because I really don't know how to describe to find it, but it's the original Planet of the Apes preliminary production information guide. It's this document I found <laughs> online somehow, and it was written June 7th, 1967. It's from James Denton, the director of publicity at 20th Century Fox Studios. Uh, and it's just, it's like a, a 30-page not even 17 page presentation of what this project is. And I just loved it so much because the way like even in 1967, you know, like 50 years ago, um, the way that they are pitching a movie is not just a script. It's not just a Mm -hmm. franchise. It's like, it's, you know, so they open up with the cast and the staff and then they, uh, they just describe everything. Planet of the Apes is a third film by Arthur P. Jacobs. 
Productions. It goes before the Panavision cameras while the young filmmaker is still supervising editing on Dr. Doolittle, the costliest musical ever made. Jacob's first for the studio was the highly successful What a Way to Go. So just in introducing the project, they're already like talking about how amazing this director mm-hmm. is, right? Name dropping stuff. Um, wow. And how and then they, they're talking about the cast and how everything's gonna be under wraps and how no one is gonna go off set with the ape makeup on because it's gonna be a secret that's gonna dazzle everyone when they watch it and just there's like this kind of golden age of hollywood built into the writing mm-hmm. of this thing but um you know like oh it's like so here's a paragraph a sample paragraph where they write the problem of makeup involved the collaboration of chemists as well as makeup design artists it's necessary that the performers in aprils be able to manipulate their faces realistically they must be able to use the face to depict emotion obviously they must also be able to use it to eat to eat, and the first substances employed for makeup stiffened so that the actors could not chew. For a while, it appeared that they would have to sub- subsist on a liquid diet during their working days on the film, but ultimately a combination of substances resulted in a makeup which gives them full facial mobility. So they're like already in the presentation of how they're going to make this movie. They're talking about mm-hmm. the technology. They're talking about like this one actor used to be in the Navy, and now he's playing like a Navy corporal, and this woman was so amazing in this film and she's going to, you know, come to a whole new level. So I, I don't know. It's, it's like a 50 year old pitch document for a movie. That's just like so good and so exciting. It reminds me of JJ Abrams, uh, Bible for lost. If you've ever read that where you're just like, it's just text. There's no pictures. There's no visuals. There's no layout, mm-hmm. nothing, but you're reading it and you're like, Ooh, this is exciting. I do want to be a part of this. <laughs> so I think it's just like a great, um, document as an example of like how just words and text can get people excited about a project because it's something that i'm thinking about on a daily basis like how can i get people excited about my projects so check it out (laughs) planet of the apes preliminary production (laughs) information information guide well you want to give us the end credits yeah um well thanks so much oren uh you can Find out all about what the things that we talked about on the show at JustShootItPod.com. All of our social media is at JustShootItPod. You can follow me at Mr. Matt Enloe. And me at Smitey Pileg. And this episode was edited by Jay McAuliffe. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And our producer is Madeline Rosewatt. Uh, the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And read us on iTunes. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.